Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. To conclude our week dedicated to a very chaotic and messy U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, I've invited on a friend of mine, Mike Nelson. He's an Afghan, or I should say an American war veteran who served in Afghanistan and is now the visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University. Mike, it's great to have you on. I know you know a lot about this conflict, having been there and having worked with the now much maligned Afghan security forces. First of all, let me just start with the big picture here. What what the hell happened <laughs> and, and did it need to go this way? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm glad to talk about this because uh, this is something that you know a lot of my friends and a lot of my Afghan and American friends spent so long working on and, and dedicating their lives to. In, in short answer, no, it did not have to be like this. One of, the, I think, the, the common talking points that a lot of people who have just recently become Afghan observers and experts like to, to say is that, well, it was unwinnable. From the inception, it was always going to end up like this. So whether it was, you know, we left in 2002 or whether we left now, the Taliban was always going to come back. Right. I, I reject that premise. But there were several points along the path that led us to 2020 where there were decisions that were made, I'm sorry, 2021 where there were decisions that were made by both Afghan and American actors that made this outcome more likely than it had to be. In the short term, over the, the course of this, this whole conflict, you know, I, I think one of the major death knells in the, the government of Afghanistan was the aftermath of the 2014 election with the unity government. Obviously, they'd had a very corrupt government leading up to that point in time with Hamid Karzai, but the inability of Ghani and Abdullah to, to look past their political rival, rivalries and create a functioning government uh, kind of built a, a poison pill in the beginning. Uh, we also had, had constructed a Afghanistan, both through civil institutions and through military institutions, that made sense to us. Yeah. We tried to find the simple answer that was easiest for us to implement rather than trying to find a solution that was a fit for the environment. The pictures of purple fingerprints or fingers being held in the air after elections that was powerful. And that really rallied a lot of American audiences. But what we failed to recognize is structured, uniform, bureaucratic democracy didn't necessarily translate in the hinterlands of Helmand province all the time. Isn't there now evidence through the Afghanistan papers that the Washington Post put together that in that election, or at least one of those elections, there was just rampant ballot stuffing? I mean, so in other words, this was not a free and fair election. This was every bit a kind of crooked and, you know, kind of manipulated style third world election that, that we claimed that we'd put paid to. I was over there at the time during the 2014 election, and it definitely came across that way. Mm -hmm. I recognize that while I'm sitting here in hindsight, sounding like I'm criticizing the decision of the, the American decision makers to help broker that deal of the unity government, at the time, we had so many existential crises along the way that had to be dealt with. We had to stop the bleeding at each point and not necessarily account for what was going to happen later. Right. There were very real feelings of animosity and, and that you know, at the time I was working in Mazari Sharif and I was meeting with Adonur on a regular basis, there was a suspicion that he was just going to, you know, throw up his hands and say, well, if Jamiat didn't win, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, the North is going to secede. Right. So the unity government was a way to stop the bleeding of 2014, but it never got fixed. We, we don't the short-term fix and we never built the long-term structural plan to create a functioning government. The ANA, as you pointed out, which has been much maligned over the course of this collapse, was you know, we take for granted that our soldiers come to us as young 18, 19, 20 year olds who are coming from one of the best education systems in the world, you know, that, that, that we have people who can read and write. Yeah. 
how do you teach a, an army to do maintenance on vehicles that is predicated on going to the, the manual and reading how to maintain that vehicle and then recording the deficiencies to be dealt with you know, historically when 90% of your conscripts can't read? That's not to knock the Afghans. They, they were, you know, there were, there were people who showed up, but they were often very confused by what we were trying to tell them to do. Right. Which made sense for us, but not to them. And I mean, it doesn't exactly, you know, sort of serve the corps d'esprit if, you know, guys are sitting there scratching their heads because they don't understand what you're trying to teach them. Therefore, they can't become competent soldiers or mechanics or engineers. And therefore, you know, when someone comes along and says, hey, you want to make some real money and do something more meaningful with your life, they fuck right off and do it. You know, I mean, there's a whole kind of morale issue that I, I think we're not. Americans can be so solipsistic and never, never more so than when they fail at something, right? You know, they, it's everyone else is to blame except ourselves and our own, you know, kind of magnificent um, understanding of how the, the world works. And also, like, isn't it the case that when we basically stopped sharing intelligence with them and, and actually disallowed the Afghan Air Force to hire contractors to do the maintenance on the planes, they basically their entire Air Force was grounded, right? They couldn't conduct, you know, aerial operations against the Taliban for what was it, several weeks or months since this May process got underway. It, it was, and so there's been a lot of focus put on the, the Afghan Air Force and, and the air capabilities that we gave them. You know, one of the, the the common, once again, very easy in hindsight to look back, but we decided that the the supply chains that we owned would be best to supply our Afghan partners. So we had them purchase UH-60s. Because as long as we're there and we're guaranteeing those supply chains, those maintenance parts for UH-60s, the Blackhawks are gonna come in. As soon as you leave that Afghan, or I'm sorry, that American air bridge in, and now you're surrounded by the former Soviet republics that don't necessarily have an open market for her, for supply parts, it's it's um, UH-60s, it's harder to maintain on your own. Yeah. The A-29, the Super Tucano, was meant to be kind of a low-cost low alternative to give them what they needed, which was just close air support in to, to fight against Taliban fighters. But I think the, the biggest failing was not necessarily the Air Force, while that definitely would have made a difference, but it was teaching the army to become dependent on air to ground fires for years, that that was the knee jerk reaction. You make contact, you, you engage in the, in the contact, but then you call for, for close air support. It never built in the discipline of other kinds of fires, of indirect fires, of direct fires and maneuver. Uh, so when they lost the ability to fight the war, the way we trained them, it, it, it kind of fell apart. One thing I'd like to go back and revisit, though, that, that you talked about our solipsism and our view of our own military, the view of young soldiers not understanding what their officers are doing and you know, sometimes thinking that, that nobody understands their plight, this is something that, that is not unique to Afghanistan. This is something that is captured in Beetle Bailey and Willie and Joe. And in, in Europe, in Good Soldier Spike, this is a tradition of my officers don't understand me, they don't listen to me, so I'm going to go off and do something shirk duty. That's a tradition in every military. Yeah, We joke about it. But when someone from another country is trying to tell you how to do your job better and you don't understand what they're communicating and you're not getting fed or paid, it's not going to sustain itself. Yeah. W one of the, the ironies that I'm seeing now is this attempt to kind of put an end to the so-called forever wars and, and turn the, the, the existing ones into invisible wars. So, you know, Nancy Pelosi's office came out with a statement a few days ago, essentially endorsing Biden's policy and withdrawal plan, however that went, and completely eliding 
the existence of U.S. forces in Syria. Apparently, there are no servicemen and women stationed in eastern Syria and Raqqa embedded with, you know, the SDF. Uh, you saw today, or I guess it was yesterday, the interview the president gave with George Stephanopoulos, which, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to comment on, on the, the overall <laughs> aesthetic and intellectual content of that, but I will say, I mean, he even denied that we have troops in Syria. Th- this seems to me now kind of extraordinary because what's taken place, you had, what, 2,500 American troops in Afghanistan, not much of an American recognition of the fact other than, oh, yeah, this is, you know, our longest war and we've been there for quite a while and it doesn't seem to be going very well. But U.S. combat fatalities were way down. We were essentially there, what? What would you call it? I don't even know what the term of art is in the military. Advisors? I mean, we were running combat operations, but not really. And now it's, you know, other garrisons scattered throughout a very restive part of the world simply just don't exist. So I wonder, like, is this going to be the the new policy going forward? Just, you know, like the old Eddie Murphy joke about the guy who gets caught by his girlfriend walking out of his mistress's house. He just goes, wasn't me. Yep. <laughs> you know, just yep. deny it. Bald face lies and see if the American public notices. I think there's become an expectation, both through the way that some of our political leaders have handled this and through the way that it's portrayed in popular media, that special operations forces are everywhere and we'll do everything. And we just expect that that's happening and we don't know about it. Right. Uh, I, I think part of much of the debate that we should have had as a country about the foreign policy in Libya and the aftermath of what we did there was clouded by the, the vociferous arguments about Benghazi. And part of that was people informed that, well, they just assumed we had the ability to reach out and touch someone anywhere in the globe at any time, because we obviously have special operations everywhere, right. um, regardless of, of what small footprints there might be in different places. I think this causes a problem for us as a country, because if we divorce ourselves as a body politic from the ability to discuss what our, our interests are overseas and whether those are done by special operations forces or conventional forces, it's still the use of force on behalf of the United States. Right. I heard something. I think I have to you know, uh, admit that it's, it's a pop culture reference, but I heard recently on the West Wing, somebody said the people stop tr- trusting their political leaders when the political leaders stop trusting the people. Right. There's this assumption that soft is doing stuff in all these shady places around the world, because we assume our leaders aren't telling us everything that SOF is doing. And the more that one reinforces the other, it becomes a a vicious cycle, I think. It is more important, I think, for us to have a healthy discussion, particularly as we go into a new world of great power competition. What is the role of America in the world? Through that role, what is the role of American force in the world? Not necessarily just combat operations, but we see what's going on in Syria, that, that a small footprint is able to maintain a little bit of a cap on what could otherwise be a very chaotic situation. We saw it in Afghanistan where, now granted, I, I will concede that some of the ability of the 2,500 to hold the situation together in Afghanistan was based on some horrible negotiations with the Taliban where they got much more than we did. But we do have to, to agree that, that the Taliban was intentionally not targeting Americans to try to ease our progress out. But we do have to, if our leaders plan to use these footprints around the world, we kind of have to talk about it. Right. You know, I I was putting this to Wesley Morgan, who was on the show a day ago, and, you know, was a researcher of a very good book called The End Game, which was about, uh, you know, the Iraq occupation and sort of the, really from a very detailed, granular point of view and, and, and drawing actually a lot from U.S 
classified intelligence, which they weren't supposed to have access to, but that's another story, showed really the, the way that Iraq was somewhat stabilized you know, during the, the sectarian civil war. And you know, one of the takeaways from that, which again, most Americans don't really get to appreciate because it's not the kind of thing that you can summarize in the space of 30 seconds on cable news, is you know, American soldiers were creating, I would say, tactical partnerships with some pretty nasty comers, including insurgents who had been blowing them up weeks prior, but had discovered a common enemy in the form of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, right? And one of the kind of, I think, startling and uncomfortable takeaways from 20 years of the global war on terror and all of its outcropping, you know, wars of choice and all that, is that the United States is going to have to park its idealistic notions of what it can achieve and, and essentially the kind of social engineering projects that were attempted in the 20th century and failed catastrophically. And it's going to mean, I mean, whatever you want to call this, you, you want to call this just a you know, global engagement, you want to call it a return to realpolitik, it's going to mean making deals and, and doing business with some very unpleasant people. And then by that, I don't mean, you know, the old cliche, bad alliances with Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, it, it is not beyond the realm of plausibility now that in order to ensure that Al-Qaeda and jihadists that mean to do us harm from remote parts of the world don't reconstitute in Afghanistan, we might have to conduct business with the Taliban, which is simply interested in its own nation building project, however barbaric and, and uh, theocratic that may be. You know, given sort of the high blown rhetoric after 9-11, about democracy promotion and liberal values and human rights, a pretty uncomfortable and sad denouement in the last 20 years, isn't it? But it's, it's just the way these things work. It's just the, how you have to go to war. Well, this is something interesting that, that Peter Newman from King's College tweeted the other day, and it really re resonated with me. He said, part of the problem we're seeing right now is America, and I paraphrase him, America always has seen itself as this beacon of liberty and these as guarantor of rights and ideals, but we're also a country that has hard interests. And he goes, our competitors don't have this problem. Russia is just a country. You know, you, you, it'd be hard to say, what are Chinese ideals? Right. There's just Chinese interest. It's tough for us to try to, you know, uh, merge those two concepts. And that's that larger dialogue. I think we've had a problem where we found ourselves in the aftermath of World War II, uh, suddenly the guarantor of a bipolar, you know, tenuous order with us and the Soviets. With the fall of the Soviet Union, whether we asked for it or not, now we were the only ones who were able to guarantee in any way the, the global order. And then we've been at war for 20 years. Right. What comes after that now that we have these rising powers? I do, to a certain extent, think that it's not mutually exclusive. We Americans, I think, really like simple explanations for things. Uh, regime change is bad because it went badly in Iraq. Rather than looking at, well, these are all the decisions that, for example, Paul Bremer made that made that regime change so difficult. Right. We, we don't tend to look at the, the details very well. So I think in a lot of people's minds, through the, the hard work of the, both the KGB and you know, people like Oliver Stone, our efforts in El Salvador are remembered as sponsoring death squads. In fact, from 1981 to 1989, through our mill group presence, small footprint of 55 people, we were able to mentor the El Salvadorian forces to tremendously reduced their instance, instances of human rights abuses that if they would not have otherwise. There would have been no incentive for them to do that if they did not have those American touch points. So you're right that sometimes it means dealing with people that on, on the face of it, at least at first blush, are not positive actors in every aspect. I think we can maneuver some of that to a certain extent, but not necessarily by, with, with, with an iron fist. 
it really does call to mind. I mean, the, the, the debate about war and, and foreign policy has become so cartoonish, particularly with the rise of social media. But it always strikes me as, as rather revealing that some of the most cynical people are also the most naive, right? They, they really think, you know, that if it's a, a brown person in the Middle East carrying a gun, that this is inherently somebody to be suspicious of or that they're going to commit acts of terrorism against the United States. You know, all of the, the cultural and tribal complexities and dynamics, which alter and vary, as you point out, from country to country, from region to region. We have this sort of now neo-Orientalist imprint on the world that, you know, anything America does there, everybody is, 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 is highly suspect, except maybe the Iranians, right? Um, the Russians, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. You know, we have this, this now kind of anatomy of widespread corruption and you know, profiteering by uh, private enterprise and arms contractors and, you know, Afghans essentially just skimming the till, stealing money from I mean, what, if anything, if the, I've been trying to imagine like Putin's army in Afghanistan today, if, if anything, there would be have, have to be kickbacks to the Kremlin directly. They wouldn't they wouldn't give a shit about kleptocracy. I mean, that's their stock and trade. Right. And this is also another scary takeaway of the last 20 years. And I think it's it has really smashed the kind of 1989 post-Cold War hubris that a lot of us had espoused. And that is to say, liberal democracy is not a predetermined endpoint for history. Right. There are alternatives and those alternatives are not necessarily Hitler and Stalin. Right. You know, there are illiberal, quasi-democratic, but really authoritarian regimes they manage to make the trains run on time. They kill their enemies. They throw certain political actors into prisons. But it's not a, a rampant slave state like Stalinist Russia was, where the gulag is, is basically responsible for industrialization. I mean, that alternative is going to be very, very attractive to a very great number of people, including and especially those of us in the United States who are drawn to some of these kind of populist currents, whether they're coming from the left or the right. I think, again, you know, we were very almost willfully Pollyanna-ish about not only what could be accomplished, but the types of people we would have to work with in order to accomplish it. I think that we take it for granted, you know, with our short-term memories, that because the entirety of our lives have been lived in, in liberal democracy, that is something that is, number one, in the natural human state, or something that naturally occurs to someone, even if they've not lived in that state. Whereas we, we can see this country that w wanted to reject the repression under which it had lived since 1996, from 1996 to 2001, that maybe wasn't quite there and didn't necessarily feel the, the fit with the purple finger fingers. You know, th that right. a system that looks a little bit like tribal feudalism, or at least provincial feudalism, might be an acceptable form of government. We confuse democracy with legitimacy. Right. And to many people, the legitimate form of government was a tribal elder speaking to someone at the district level, who's speaking to the provincial level, who's speaking to someone in Kabul. There was no problem with that. And not all of them probably wanted to send their little girls to school. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But we had to recognize that there was kind of this, uh, Thomas Barfield uh, used to refer to parts of Afghanistan uh, he'd say when, when you buy a, a sandwich that comes with Swiss cheese on top, you don't get upset about the holes in the middle. You just know that a Swiss cheese comes with, with holes. Right. You should look the same way at Afghanistan. There's certain parts of it that you just the, the person in Kabul doesn't have his thumb you know, definitively on. It's more of a loose confederation around it. Yeah. I, I don't think that that was natural to the American way of thinking. And once again, we looked for a solution that was easier to us and not that was easier to the people who were from there.
you're, you're already beginning to see, and some of this stuff can be very overcooked. I mean, you know, the, the Chinese government rattling its saber at Taiwan, uh, American politicians suggesting the same thing will happen in Taiwan, even though the situation there is completely different. But, you know, I mean, like Nikolai Patrushev, the chairman of Russia's Security Council today gave an interview basically saying, you know, I mean, a lot of it was kind of boilerplate and Ukraine has become a Nazi state or increasingly Nazifying by these extremist forces that have been unleashed by the United States and blah, blah, blah. But then at the end, he goes, and just as the pro-American regime in Afghanistan collapsed, so too will the one in Ukraine. Ukrainians should prepare themselves. You can always overstate the argument of credibility, right? American credibility is is constantly, it, it, it's like virginity, constantly lost and then regained somehow by people. <laughs> but I think there is definitely something to be said that there are some indelible images from the last week, not least of which people falling from the wheels of American transport aircraft to plummeting to their death. A president looking and sounding very misinformed and befuddled about his own policy and what is unleashed by it. It's going to be hard, I think, for people to really believe. I mean, I had this conversation all the time. Well, I mean, used to have it with Syrian opposition activists and then started to have it with the Kurds, particularly of Iraqi Kurdistan, who couldn't understand why America was underwriting or seeming to be seemed to be underwriting a kind of IRGC onslaught, you know, with the fall of Kirkuk several years ago. This was like, how did this happen? How did you guys do this? And one of the arguments you keep hearing is like, look, you know, we don't like working with the Russians and we know what they're about and we know how how brutal their their military tactics are. But at least they when they when you become their ally, they, they back you up, you know. The same thing with the Iranians. The Chinese don't really play in this game, at least not yet. But th- this is also a very worrisome state of affairs, right? I mean, the inviability of Article 5. I think a lot of, especially new member states to NATO, don't really believe that exists anymore. It's, it's sort of like smoke and mirrors. Where does America, in your view, where do we go from here in terms of, obviously, we have to kind of have a, a real inventory taking about what our principles are, what our objectives are what our global strategy is, but where do you think it goes from here? I mean, is, is, is all this kind of going to be memory hold the minute the next big conflict breaks out or the next big, you know, active ethnic cleansing demands calls for intervention and all the rest of it? I think, as you pointed out, there are a lot of people who, with these images and a lot of our adversaries trying to make informational use of them, uh, and there are a lot of people at home who are, who are writing the obituary on American influence right now uh, based on this. I think it goes back, you know, to, to bring in another Afghanistan reference. It's the end of Charlie Wilson's war. You know, we'll see. I pointed out earlier to somebody that uh, there was less than 10 years between the fall of Saigon and Lech Walesa reaching out for American influence and support. We, we can absolutely return to our role and our presence, but it requires that larger conversation. Like you pointed out with the, we were so focused in 2014, 2015, 2016, on defeating ISIS, that sometimes we would piecemeal things together that would allow, you know, further Iranian influence. We kind of approach some problems sometimes, like Johnny Cash building his one piece at a time car. If you just deal with each problem in piecemeal, you end up with this thing that doesn't really fit together at the end. Right. So instead, it requires this internal conversation: What do we, as an American people, think our role is in the goal? And then an external communication and vision and goal of achieving that. It was easy, not easy. I overstate it. It was simpler from 1945 to 1991 when it was 
we are here, communists are there. We'll take different approaches between containment and then worrying about domino theory and then detente and then finally trying to bring about the fall of the empire, the, the, the evil empire. You know, there are, there are variations within that tune, but there's still that overall theme. What is that for us? And, and to your, your point about Article 5, I think that requires, obviously, America needs to get its, its vision together, but then we need to rally our allies. What constitutes an attack in this day and age? When you know we have the, between the scripples, between what happened to Estonia in the in the early two thousands, uh, there's going to be something. There's going to be a button pushed that one NATO member is going to think is an assault on them, that other NATO members might not. And does that spend, spell the end of the the alliance if we can't agree, uh, and people don't guarantee that they're going to be protected? And you know the failure to back up your ally can have deleterious consequences, and that allies. Kind of political orientation, geopolitical orientation. I mean, you, the, the point you just raised about someone thinking of invoking at least, you know, if not Article Five, then Article Four uh, was Turkey several times. I think when they were being bombarded by the Syrian regime in Antakya, and also I think when their plane was shot down, they wanted to have consultations. And Brussels was basically like, "We ain't going to do anything about this." Well, you keep saying things like that, and eventually people decide to look for allies elsewhere, right? I mean, it is kind of extraordinary. It's also a little hypocritical of, of the Europeans to be, you know, shocked, shocked and horrified by what's taking place in Afghanistan, given they haven't really stepped up to the plate with the United States on a host of other issues, not least of which Nord Stream 2, which we've capitulated to the Germans about. But I mean, th the idea that America is first among equals in this military alliance does carry a lot of baggage and responsibility. And if the United States says, fuck it, we're done, well, you know, the French and the British and the Germans and certainly, you know, the Estonians and the Baltics, they're not going to stick around in a war zone that America has decreed simply can't be won. Uh, and then there's just brute realities of, of the transatlantic relationship or what's left of it. I will say, though, you know, one thing that that does kind of come through and I think led to despite Vietnam and despite a lot of the failures of anti-communist policymaking for the duration of the Cold War, was this implicit notion that, look, the part of Europe that had been conquered by the Soviet Union was very familiar to the United States. These are countries that had had traditions of liberal democracy, or at least some version of democracy. They had cultures that, I mean, frankly, were shared by a lot of Americans because those Americans had come from that part of the world. So in other words, the occupation uh, the Soviet empire underneath was a kind of latent natural alliance waiting to be made. Uh, and to some extent, we're seeing it unmade in, in the backsliding taking place in Hungary and Poland and elsewhere. But I think that unfortunately is, is an argument that endures like 20 years of mucking about in the Middle East. And most Americans don't believe that we have anything in common, that we should be there because the, you know, th these are people who are going to have our back when we need it. Right. Mm -hmm. And you and I, I think, have enough experience personally anyway, not professionally in your case, to know that that's not true. There are people who share values and who really idealistically believe in the United States. But I really do think that this perception has been smashed, perhaps irreparably for at least a generation. You know, I mean, look at look at how 9-11 and the aftermath of that have affected the domestic American political situation, you know, with people who grew up after the Berlin Wall came down, who are now thinking, oh, actually, communism wasn't all that bad, you know? Well, I think we can even look to ourselves with, you know, just during the, I mean, granted, it has been a 20-year war, 
but the amount of people claiming, you know, now in hindsight that they never supported a war in Afghanistan and we never should have gone. It's, it's a fiction. Right. There was overwhelming support and overwhelming righteous causes belly, you know, to start this war. How we conducted it absolutely deserves a certain amount of criticism. But we have so forgotten how we felt and what we thought was a just cause and what was a just cause. It's easy to see, or it's easier, I think, to see how certain elements in Eastern Europe have forgotten the evils of communism, how certain elements in parts of Europe have forgotten the evils of right-wing fascism, uh, how certain elements within various countries feel more affinity with other political extremist elements in other countries than they do with their fellow country. It, it does not bode well for the international liberal order, uh, quite frankly. Well, Mike, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I always feel like this show is like the most depressing thing I've ever done with my life. And I wrote a book on ISIS, and now I'm writing a book on the GRU. But it's like every time I have a guest on, it's always just this kind of it ends with a veil of tears. Tell me something nice. Tell me something that's going on that's positive in, in either your world or in the world. Well, I, I, will, I will bring it down to uh, an organization that I started my career in. Good. The one that I was in on September 11th. I take incredible pride right now. Uh, I talk to my, my friends, my fellow uh, veterans, my, my peers. This is not the way we wanted this to end. And now I need to make clear, obviously, when we talk about you know, who is affected by this, obviously the people of Afghanistan who are left behind, um, our Afghan partners, uh, the families of those who were killed in, in Afghanistan, those are the ones who are bearing the brunt of this, who probably have the most frustration to deal with. But there are those of us who worked on this that also are disappointed and demoralized. Right. You know, America lost our longest war, and that, is, that sucks. But there are 19-year-old paratroopers right now, Marines and airmen, who alerted, marshaled, and deployed, and got on a plane with very little notice because the work's not done. And they're over there meeting the mission, meeting what's required of them by the Republic to do the right thing, to bring out the, the remaining American citizens, to bring out the Afghan uh, special immigrant visa holders, and, and fly them to safety. And the morale and, and professionalism of those, those forces that are doing that right now uh, that's why, while I end your show, continue to end the trend of ending your show on a, on a negative note, that's why I say we can still get back to that period of time where someone, where the next electable way is looking to us. Because we're going to, we have the people who have sworn to a constitutional order uh, that have, are willing to do what the Republic had asked of them and are willing to, to do those, to put themselves at risk for those who need it. So I, I take solace in that. Well, that's good. Uh, that's very uh optimistic thing to to say in conclusion all right man well look uh, always a pleasure picking your brain on this stuff um yeah i mean it, it got a little more broad ranging i think than than we had intended but that's good you know i it, this it, moments like this you have to kind of look back and do the kind of thirty thousand foot altitude view of what the hell is the united states about what is it doing and how did it get to this point in history so i think we covered a lot mike nelson uh come back soon and uh all the best of luck what's your twitter handle because you, you have a really good thread on all of this stuff uh at mike nelson 586 cool you've been listening to foreign office and we'll see you next week thanks a lot thank you very much